opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. What's well, we know who the hard left are in the you know ascendancy within the, within the Labour Party who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right to right wing. The hard left agenda, printing money, nationalisation without compensation. That's a hard left wing position. Hard left, the hard left, the hard left, and the hard left, the hard left, the hard left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, and the hard left, hard left, the hard left, 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 the hard left, 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 the hard left, hard left, left, hard left, hard left, hard left, hard left, 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 hard 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 left, is that because you've been following Theresa May on the television as well? I've just been seeing her. She's not really doing anything to me. She's, all she's saying is, oh, this or that, I'm strong, this one. She's not really doing anything to me. What does strong and stable leadership mean? Hello, you're listening to the Real Politics Podcast. We've got me, Jack Brain Reed, and my co-host Tom Foster. Hello. Sadly, Kieran is not here as he has defected to Tom, who's Kieran defected to? Oh god, is it the same as Graham Linham? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I was just, uh, you know, I, I wanted to throw it out there so to see if, uh, you know, anyone had a, a suggestion of an ISIS. Jude, who do you think Kieran's defected to? Um, I heard that he's now appearing on a podcast with one Stephen Bush, but you know, <laughs> it is our sad duty to report that Kieran Morris has defected to the New Statesman. <laughs> Alleged. Allegedly, allegedly, we don't we don't want to damn Kieran too much. Yeah, so we we've got a very special guest with us today. We've got our friend Jude Wanger, who you might know as at Jude in London on Twitter, and she's a, a freelance campaigner, a writer, and a purveyor of fiery takes. That's the best introduction I've ever had. <laughs> there we go. Thank you for coming on. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for joining us. It's going to be another sort of election-centric episode, and we're going to be discussing the Labour and the Tory manifesto. Apparently there's a Lib Dem manifesto as well. I think I've only read the section about the gay frogs, but it was very compelling. <laughs> um, uh... Yeah, but first, I think we're going to just touch on a few things that have happened in the world recently. So first of all, because I imagine this will be another extremely politics-focused episode, I just want to say on a sort of cinematic front, I started watching the new series of Better Call Saul in the last couple of nights, and it is fire. Like, it's a really good show. I think it's so much better written than, than Breaking Bad, but season three, for some strange reason, just really started with a bang and has kind of just continued. And last week's episode, I thought, was worthy of an Emmy Award. It's so good. 
Oh, wow. I've only, I think I've watched the first three episodes of it. You're in for some good times for the next two, then. Oh, awesome. Because there's uh, one of the big characters from Breaking Bad in, in a great reintroduction. The battle of brothers is still raging intensely between Jimmy and Chuck. It's a really compelling storyline, and just the show in general is great. Like, I fucking love Jonathan Banks' face. And like I, I love like the back of his head. It's just like this, this kind of like it's just like a slab of meat in a fucking butcher. <laughs> just like, <laughs> or or, it, or he he looks like, and I mean this very positively. Like it's he's got a very characterful face and head, but it's just, <laughs> but it's just like he looks like in like some films where they put on these like rubber masks, like in Drive. He he looks like yeah. his actual head is yeah. like the thing Ryan Gosling puts on in Drive. <laughs> but that's I'm not dissing. It's a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> so I I've been I've been watching a bit of that using Netflix for the first time in a while. I considered watching the last 5 minutes of The Jihadis Next Door, which I'd started the last time I used Netflix, but um I thought Better Call Saul looked pretty good. And you were not disappointed. <laughs> no, I wasn't. <laughs> Has anyone else seen anything good that they want to briefly mention? Keeping the real and real politic. One of my favourite shows, miniseries, of this TV season has been um, Big Little Lies, um... which was an adaptation of a book, and it starred Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman, and it was just stunning. There's only seven episodes, so it's very short, okay. um, and it was HBO, but um, it's just basically a tale of all these <clears throat> housewives in a town in America, and they've all got little secrets from each other, or little secrets that they're protecting for each other, and there's like an underlying storyline that builds, and it 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 builds until the last episode. And it's, from my perspective, it's it's just completely female orientated. So all the main characters are almost all women, and then all the male characters are kind of secondary characters. Yeah, um, I see Laura Dern but in it, it as well. She's a great yeah, actor. Yeah, Laura Dern is amazing in it. Honestly, there is not one bad performance in that entire show. And it's rare to see someone like Nicole Kidman, who mainly only ever does actual film for screen, to do something for TV. And to get that caliber of a cast together to do TV work is very hard to do. So I think that's why the miniseries was only seven episodes rather than the standard kind of 10 to 13 yeah it's directed by the guy who did dallas bias club yeah so it's got a film like, director he, as well they could only get him together for like seven episodes or something i think which is part of why they had so few episodes but i think what that did was make each episode have less filler so every minute in every episode is pushing the story forward somehow if you miss a minute you might miss something that's going to be crucial in another episode and it's just fantastic standard so i would definitely recommend that Oh, that, Big Little Lies. That sounds really good. I saw that advertised and thought it looked good, actually. And I think there's another series on TV that Nicole Kidman's appeared in recently that I watched the first series of, and I really enjoyed it. It was called Top of the Lake. I didn't even know she'd done any other TV work. That's brilliant. Um, She's one of my favorites. That's a welcome surprise to hear. Top of the Lake is a super grim kind of, like, crime drama set in New Zealand. It stars Elizabeth Moss, who's Peggy in Mad Men, as a cop. And, yeah, Nicole Kidman appears in the second series of that, apparently, which, if it's out, I need to get around to watching. But um, one thing I'm looking forward to is Twin Peaks is coming back before the end of this month. I'm going... Everyone is excited about that, and I'm just going to out myself as someone who has never watched an episode of Twin Peaks in their life. Oh, OK. Twin Peaks is, is great. 
the second series is really patchy. Mm. You, you yeah. Basically, like, you don't really need to watch all of the second series. Like, you can skip a bunch of the episodes and, like, focus on the ones that are directed by David Lynch. But I'm going to see Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, the Twin Peaks movie from, I think, 1992 at the BFI on Saturday. I'm really looking forward to that because I think that's a really underrated movie. It gets a really bad rap. But, yeah, I'm still excited for the return of Twin Peaks. All directed by him as well? Entirely David directed Lynch. by yeah. Lynch Wonderful. and written by him. He also came out and said he won't be directing any more feature films. Did he say as that? Well. Something along those lines. So I'm guessing oh, he's going to be just focusing on television from now on because obviously he feels like that's the format where he can best express his ideas and stuff in the way he wants them. So yeah. I'm assuming so he might go back on that, but that's the way it seems at the moment. I've got one more show that I do want everyone to watch, which is on Netflix, and it's called Bloodline. It stars Ben Mendelsohn. And, oh, he's a great actor. And it also stars Coach Eric Taylor from Friday Night Lights. Everyone should watch it because it's about dysfunctional families, American dysfunctional families at that. Uh, oh, no. And Yeah, no, it's great. It's, I like to describe it as, like, if you have anxiety, you'll probably need to have some kind of Valium with you whilst you watch every episode. <laughs> because as you get through each season, the anxiety within the episodes just build and build until you get to the last episode and you're basically like holding your breath, waiting for everything to kind of just like crash. And then it does in the most spectacular way. And literally every series kind of follows that format despite having different issues. I, I just wanted to say... The only two films, because I've, I've, oh, yeah, I've sorry, really Tom. watched tons, but I, I, I did watch, uh, I think I've mentioned it to you already, Jack. I've seen Win Stanley oh, and yeah. Cromwell, two films that we were probably going to talk about on the show at some point. Yeah, Because yeah, I've been this... reading a bit of Christopher Hill's The World Turned Upside Down, which is about English radicals during the English Civil War, the levellers, the diggers, the various groups that kind of came out from that period. And they're two very contrasting films I think are going to be good to talk about on the show. But I've seen those. I won't talk about them too much because we'll save that for one of our episodes. But yeah, Cromwell is, of course, about Mother Cromwell and Win Stanley is about the diggers who set up a commune on St. George's Hill in Surrey, and they are seen in many ways as being the very earliest examples of t- attempt at communism in England. I think I've seen Win Stanley. I think I watched it in third year at uni. Directed by the guys who made a film called It Happened Here, which is a sort of alternative history film about what would have happened if Operation Sea Lion had been a success and Britain was occupied by Nazi Germany. Win Stanley is very, very accurate. Very accurate to the period. It uses a lot of costumes that were actually taken from places like the Tower of London and used in the film. So it's probably one of the most accurate films you can watch on that period speak going back um, to sea lions for a second sorry <laughs> i just, just wanted to let let that hang going going back going back to uh, sea lions for a second do you okay. do you remember when Bryn phillips was losing his shit and he and he, he was and he was asking for like somebody's address or something and somebody was just like yeah mr sea lion and gave him the address of london zoo <laughs> I've heard a lot about this Bryn Phillips. He came off on the last show a lot, didn't he? Yeah. He's the character. Yeah. He's a, he's a very strange man. <laughs> and now that we've got her here, we've got to give Jude credit for just like absolutely fucking 
destroying <laughs> Trevor Merrill's bid for running as a Labour candidate. The really weird thing about Bryn Phillips is that I only came across him because he was speaking to somebody that I knew from my uni days. Mm. Uh, the less said about that, the better. Um, <laughs> and I remember when the Angry Cabby video was being shared, I think it was around, around the time of the Blue Labour conference, and I just thought, this guy's just racist. Like, yeah. like why are you all so enthralled by him? He's just racist like you don't really have to dig that deep it's just legitimate concerns dude come on like yeah his legitimate concerns i just remember going on his um on his twitter page and just thinking oh what what would you search for if he's gonna if he's like a stereotypical uk racist if you search his name in muslims or islam you're gonna find something and i did yeah um i just remember sending him all of this stuff like four months ago and then someone contacted me and said was it you that went off about this cabbie at the blue label conference i was like yeah and they're like do you remember his name i was like no idea and i was like i think he's now like a labor candidate for a seat so i was like what yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry are you kidding me and so they, they, they were like no yeah i think he's into cabbie marrows or something like that so like, and i had a look and i was like got to be joking so i kind of put it all out there and remember sending a couple of dms to people going i don't know if you know people in labor but you need to tell them to shut this down <laughs> right now yeah and then Bryn phillips seems to be under the impression that i contacted jim waterson at buzzfeed mm. um and gave him all of this and started some random smear campaign which is absolutely hilarious when jim waterson just sort of like observed what was going on and then yeah put it and in then his wrote piece. it up at her buzzfeed style yeah and okay, you're going to sue me for libel or smearing, but I haven't done anything. I didn't contact anyone. Yeah. What's wrong with you? I don't know. Bryn was, he was looking for someone to blame for what was going on. I guess initially he went for you. I... He, he went for a few people. Dr. Bastano. <laughs> Dr. Bastano. <laughs> <laughs> and Abby Wilkes as well got a lot of very, like, creepy fucking tweets. <laughs> strange man a very very strange man but yeah like what are your thoughts on like how somebody like that could have been selected in the first place well i think it speaks to like the larger problem within the labor party machinery which we've all been talking about over the last two years which says they're not really doing due diligence and my personal theory is that he was recommended by someone who is friendly to blue labor Mm. who i don't know but obviously because of the snap election there hasn't really been any time to do due diligence which has worked for the benefit of those who are kind of against any candidates who would be kind of Corbyn leaning because they can recommend people on the kind of basis that they've already vetted them and they trust them to the Labour Party machinery and then obviously these names were put forward above others so that's personally what I think probably ended up happening because if he just put himself forward normally as every other candidate did and went through some kind of vetting process and that speaks to a much larger problem within the Labour Party because it shouldn't have taken them more than like 10 seconds to have found all of the stuff that I'd found. Yeah. Even after he deleted his account, that would not have taken them long to find. Yeah, I mean, we, we were onto him months ago. Absolutely months ago. I don't know when he deleted his account because obviously it was gone by the time this was announced. Yeah. But if you're in the process of looking for somebody to be a parliament 
candidate, then you should be able to do some kind of Googling to see what appearance, if any, he has on social media. And that would have led them to Bryn Phillips's tweet. And then they would have found the subsequent criticism straight away. So it was a massive ball drop on the part of those who are in charge of betting. Yeah. Really. It was very strange because they were able to suspend thousands of members over very innocuous tweets that nobody else was able to find over the leadership election. But yet for a parliamentary candidate, they weren't able to find all of this evidence, which showed that he was completely ill-suited to be put forward. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff that people got suspended. Like, I don't think that Labour actually suspended a person last year for saying, I fucking love Foo Fighters. I think there was probably another reason for that. But they were suspending people for some really innocuous stuff. But this guy had tweeted outright racism over and over again and all different forms of racism as well there was stuff that was specifically against black people stuff that was anti-semitic stuff that was islamophobic it was really really grim even if you put all of that aside which you shouldn't but even if you were kind of you know a labor person who was willing to overlook that for whatever reason he had tweets where he was denigrating labor voters and members yeah so how would you have gone forward with that anyway because when he's kind of framing people who vote for Labour as kind of feckless people who are work shy who just have children to live on benefit how do you then have him be representative of the party it doesn't make sense it's very it's almost kind of like getting another (laughs) Rachel Reeves I absolutely agree it's absurd but there is so much of that fundamental absurdity going on in Labour's selection choices there are so many people getting picked to represent this party and to put forth our policies in our current manifesto which we'll talk about soon that just don't support these policies that aren't supportive of our leader or our political message and the entirety of the right and the centre are acting as if there's no kind of bizarre dissonance to picking people who don't support a party in its current form to represent the party at an election. And so the Trev thing speaks to that. But at the same time, it also speaks to this fundamental kind of cultural divide in the Labour Party between the left, for whom alarm bells instantly ring about Trev. Like, as soon as we saw that video of him and heard the stuff he was saying, we were like, okay, this guy is a racist. From just the stuff he was saying in that video, he seemed to have a particular problem with Eastern Europeans, and he seemed to invest quite a a strong amount in being white, essentially. So we all instantly thought, okay, this guy's a racist. He's not one of us. He's a bigot. He's not the kind of person who should be in politics. But this other wing of the party, the Blue Labour sort of wing, they see this guy and think, okay, the authentic tribune of the working class, telling it how it is, this is what the people really think. I mean, do, do you get that? To me personally, I think what it speaks to is the opportunism that lies within kind of like the moderates and right wing of the Labour Party, where they don't do due diligence in terms of whether people or the section of the voters that they're looking for actually accurately represent what the party is supposed to represent. So they're willing to overlook that in order to capture what they think is a, a vote share that they need. So with someone like Trevor Merrill, they saw what they thought was the kind of base that they were losing to UKIP. And so they saw an opportunism in promoting someone like Trevor at the cost of maybe losing some BME voters who they assume don't have anywhere else to go. Yeah. And will always vote Labour. And so they will put that over in certain areas. And in, in other areas, what they will do is they will play up the BME vote 
in order to stop maybe someone who's pro-Corbyn from standing um, for a position in the Labour Party. Such or as in what, Gorton. Such as in Gorton. And that's a dangerous game to play because it's something that I've spoken about before, but the BME vote is not beholden to the Labour Party and they have to work for it because I've spoken about social conservatism and how you can find that in a lot of minority cultures is actually quite popular. And it would take a... <laughs> if the Tories were capable of not being racist, they would actually be able to capture a large share of the BME vote vote, especially the older generation BME vote, because those kind of affinities are already there in terms of culture and religion. It's almost already there with English conservatism anyway, but they don't do that. And so I think Labour have to be very careful with the game they play with identity in the UK as it is right now. The fractures are there, but the demographics are changing. And as population kind of starts to shift and the race demographics in the country start to shift, they're going to start realising that this desperation to capture this indigenous working class voice that they feel that the media has or like the right wing press has led them to believe is being deflated by immigration mm. when it's actually been done by kind of Tory policy and neoliberal policies as they scramble to consolidate that they're going to miss out on the fact that those people aren't actually having as many children aren't living as long as the BME bloc which is growing increasingly as the years go on. And they're going to have a problem bridging the two unless they can finally have an honest conversation about what it means to be working class in the UK in the 21st century. And that's a conversation that until it happens, things like Brexit are just going to keep happening again and again and again and again and again. Because when people hear working class, they don't think of an Asian shopkeeper. They don't think of an Asian cab driver. They don't think of a black NHS cleaner. They think of a white plumber or a white builder or a white electrician. Yeah. But all these people are all working class together. And until you get both sides to recognise that, you're going to keep having these splits. And the Labour Party, because it's a broad church, which has in the past, I think it worked in their favour. But I think going forward, if you don't have a kind of a solid ideology that bridges all of those different sects together, you're going to start triangulating yourself into an early death, which is, I think, what we saw with the Labour Party between like 1997 and 2010, where they were triangulating to mitigate the losses that were occurring and not realise had no new original creative ideas on how to address the issues that were coming up in front of them. And so they were kind of trying to put it on the back burner, basically putting stickers on gashes that wouldn't stop bleeding. And yeah. uh, the only thing that the moderates and the kind of right wing of the Labour Party are content to do, they see like a leg that needs amputating and they're still trying to stick yeah. stickers on it as if that's going to help. They're trying to, like, trying to hold you... a leg that's falling yeah, off on with a like, fucking no. plaster. <laughs> that leg the leg is gone you need to let go of the leg <laughs> they're just uh, getting sellotape out they're like forward, will this work take the leg <laughs> and get a prosthetic it's fine you don't need to be afraid of that you need to confront that fear of going into the unknown because that's what politics is it's finding new things and it's trialing them and if they work they're great and if they don't then you you go back to a drawing board and you think of new things and you think of new ways and you improve you improve on what came before 
you can't find something that works and just because it worked over a certain period under certain conditions assume that it's going to work for the next 20 30 years because the world will not be the same in 20 30 years it's a very different world in 2017 to 1997 princess diana is no longer with us for one (laughs) Um, but uh, i think the major problem that the labor party have is that those who are desperate for power and control in the party have no original ideas creative ideas in order to get that through a way that isn't you know internal battles and smear campaigns and stuff like that there's a few things that the right of the labor party are very good at so they're very good at as you say internal battles they can organize within the party on at the clp level in terms of shit on the nec all these bureaucratic levels of the labor party the right are excellent you know they've memorized the rule book they really know how to use the rules against the left but at the same time, like on some internal battles, like NEC elections or leadership elections, that you know, they're hopeless. But the other thing they're very good at is using the media. A lot of right-wing Labour MPs and people like Richard Angel, who's not an MP, probably never will be an MP because he's shit. He, because uh, he thinks that there's a fucking binary choice between investing on care and car parks. He's a fucking dimwit. Someone like that, even they have extent, you know, he's always quoted in The Guardian. It's like, why the fuck is The Guardian quoting this scab from some organisation that literally just exists? Progress. Of course Progress are going to disagree with anything that the Labour leadership put out. But they're always there in The Guardian reports on Labour policy as if, you know, Progress criticised the idea for as a, a tax on aspiration. It's like, Of course they're going to say that, though. This is not news. It's some right-wing people don't like left-wing policies. But they do have those pre-existing networks of friendly journalists, as well as a politics that are more in line with the kind of standard political discourse you get in the media. Well, I think part of that has to do with the current crop of what we call political commentators and journalists anyway. As someone who initially wanted to do political journalism, there's a level of political reporting that you don't get for domestic politics that you find in international politics Mm. in terms of reporting. And there's a standard and it's a level. And what we've seen is the conflation of political reporting with political opinion, where people are now putting opinions forward as facts. And so you've got this rise of the commentariat and it's essentially just people who've been paid to chat shit. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately what? not get banged as a consequence um, most like, of the time. Beyond, beyond a university degree and getting a job at the Daily Mail, what really qualifies Helen Lewis's voice over the voice of a random person in an Irish pub in Archway? Well, Absolutely nothing. she's got her perspective on the gender issue uh, she no, she's not afraid nothing. to go there uh, excuse <laughs> me but bernadette farrell in archway can tell you a lot about gender perspective as well there's, <laughs> there's literally nothing there's nothing to say that but the problem is that these people because they have prominence their voices take on an importance that they haven't qualified to deserve really they haven't really done anything to deserve that importance yeah. they just happen to be in that milieu basically and that more than i think even like bbc bias or whatever is what's damaging political discourse in this country because when people only get their opinions from either the news or print media if the print media isn't up to standard then they will not get the information that they need to be educated enough to make 
competent life decisions with regards to elections, referendums, etc, etc. What I noticed was when the French elections were happening, people were kind of wondering, oh, will the French make the same mistake as America and Britain? I was like, no, there was literally <laughs> no evidence to say that the French would make that because they've been in this position before and they knew what to do then and they, they did it again. But what you're also missing is that if you have a conversation about politics with a random French person, it will be on a higher level than a random UK person. And it's not to do with being educated academically. It's about your political education as a nation. So the French are all very politically minded anyway, and they can understand concepts in a way that we don't hear because we don't have those discussions, whether it's at school or in social places, because to discuss politics isn't really something that's promoted in the UK in a meaningful way, which is why we can't have discussions on immigration, because there's just so much propaganda which was serving another purpose that when it comes back and raise its ugly head, the people who actually helped to push it are now kind of almost like deer in headlights. They don't know how to counter what they helped create. And so they flap and try to appease. And that's what we saw with the Brexit vote, which is people who suddenly realised that actually we want to stay in the EU because it makes more sense. But we've spent the last 15 years telling everyone that all their problems is as a result of the EU. So what the fuck do we do yeah. now? Until you get the bizarre spectacle of these kind of... Mr. Ian Dunt himself. Oh, yeah. Become a born-again Remainer. <laughs> uh, Ian did Brexit. Some kind of fucking Brexit Tim Barron. And it's like, what? He came out, didn't he? He said he was a Eurosceptic. He's like, I'm going to guarantee another referendum. But I'm a, bit, I'm a bit of a Eurosceptic. I just want to put that in there. Like Two weeks later, he's doing his fucking stump speeches on a big EU flag. Just stood on stood, stood on an EU flag stage. Jesus. Uh, well, I mean, uh, sorry, Tom. No, carry on. <laughs> I think it kind of the, the kind of the Labour kind of reactionary reaction yeah. <laughs> to Brexit. Um, kind of spoke more to their incompetence to look one step ahead. You've had this leadership election and you know that this referendum on the EU is going to be pushed through by the Tories. You've spent six months arguing amongst yourselves about a result that's happened. You had mm. time to put forward a candidate that would have appealed to your membership. You didn't. Corbyn won. You're not happy with it. Okay, but look one step forward. What's coming up in the next year? What do we need to do to consolidate? Because actually we've managed to go backwards over a five-year period where the Tories basically ran roughshod over the entire most of society. They didn't do that. And so then when it came to Brexit, they didn't bother to look at the case for and against. And there were plenty of valid cases to be for Brexit, just not at this particular time in history, basically, where leaving the EU at this point couldn't be done under the government that had just been elected in because it wouldn't benefit the people that the Labour Party are supposed to represent. Yeah. None of them bothered to look at that. None of them really looked at what the argument for a left sit was. And none of them bothered to try an approach which would be to recognise that the EU does have many faults. Yeah. address yeah. how you could counter those faults, whether in domestic policy or through reform inside the EU, and then put that forward to people as, we know this is not a perfect thing. Here are the benefits. Here are the things we can change. Here is why we should stay. 
that was actually Corbyn's approach. And if yeah. the majority of the Labour Party had actually followed that approach, it might have done enough to swing enough. Not that I think that the Labour share of Brexit actually would have changed very much. I actually think it was the Tory Brexit share that actually caused Brexit. Was there are more Tory voters? Yeah. <laughs> like, at, it was always going to be a bit more decisive. At, at the end of it, it was that the Tories didn't put through a successful enough argument for Remain, having stoked the fires of Brexit for the yeah, last exactly. For they all his, put out their own flame. All his time in office, <laughs> David Cameron would periodically come out and just be like, he'd do some important press conference, come out and tell all the awaited journalists, yeah, the EU, a bunch of fucking dickheads, they're trying to get in the way of me doing the really important things. And he'd, he'd slag off the EU and constantly push for Britain having these little piecemeal bits of kind of independence from them. And then sort of after his six years of soft Euroscepticism, Cameron was suddenly like, yeah, actually, it's perfect. We really need to stay in this place. And it was so unconvincing. And most of the Labour Party had exactly the same strategy as David Cameron and George Osborne and the Tory Remainers. Imagine if one of them was leading the party right now. Where would we be going into an election? I think Corbyn deserves a lot of credit for the way that he's handled the EU referendum, because I think that it would have been an immensely difficult period for any Labour leader. Yeah, absolutely. It split the Labour voting base in a pretty substantial way and in a more of a way than it split the Tory base because the difference is that Tory Europhiles still go oh well we're going to vote for the Tories because they're strong and stable. They're not that fickle the Tories have a strong electoral coalition but I think Corbyn deserves some credit for like a masterful bit of triangulation effectively. I think he, he pissed off a lot of people he lost some friends in the process but I think he's basically saved the Labour Party by not turning us into some limp bunch of anti-Brexit dickheads just kind of moaning. If you want to look at people who are turning their back on the world, turning their back on political reality, it's the people who are still trying to stop Brexit, who that has been their entire political priority for the last year. And it's overtaken basic provision of housing, jobs, healthcare, education and so on, because they can only see the European yep. Union as providing these. Everything is framed around that, absolutely. Yeah. I think it speaks yeah. to kind of the same problem that the MPs have. When, you know, we, all, we often speak of how MPs look at politics as a game. Mm. And in, in many respects to them, it is a game and it is about tactics. But David Cameron played Europe as if he was playing poker, which is a high-risk game. But in order to win something like that referendum, you needed to play it like chess, where you have to think two, three, four moves ahead. If you say this, what's the result of saying this going to be? If I say this and this occurs, how do I counter the side effects of that in order to achieve my end goal? So you do that. It's not even a pragmatism thing. It's, It's kind of just thinking before you speak and then planning in advance two, three, four, five, six steps ahead if you can. And we're supposed to believe that the brightest minds are Labour moderates and the Labour right, and they're the ones <laughs> with the big thinkers. And yet none of them could think two steps ahead. Yeah. None of them could think two steps ahead with regard to how to even deal with Corbyn, which should tell you everything that you need to do, because they backed everything on a leadership election. And then they put forward Owen Smith. <laughs> that was their response. Yeah, exactly. That was their response. You're going to drive oh. 
your standing in the nation and leak yeah. everything left, right and centre and trash the party's reputation yeah. in order to get rid of your leader. And then deny put that. Someone Imagine up. him leading us put into an election. Imagine that, it. Put someone up that doesn't have to beg people to come out for free. Yeah. How, how can they actually... <laughs> but they deny that that happened. They still say, what, nah, the, what the coup didn't damage Labour in the polls? Are you still seriously wow. blaming Labour MPs briefing a hundred negative stories a day to the press about their leader for people not having a positive opinion of the Labour Party and its leader? Are you kidding me? It goes back into what I said about how the Labour Party completely dropped the ball for the last two years. What they should have been doing since the election was preparing the ground for the next election by looking at local councils and local elections. Yeah. And winning the battle there and putting forward whatever Corbyn wanted to implement locally to see it fail if it was going to fail to give them a case for a general election or if it succeeded to prepare the ground to shift public opinion for a general election. Um, I think you're right, yeah. And they didn't do that. I think there are a few individual examples of where Labour councils have implemented policies that do resemble stuff that's in our current manifesto. And actually, quite often, it's gone quite well, such as certain councils that have implemented free school meal schemes around the country. A policy which, again, like all the centrist dickheads are quite unhappy with, because this bizarre idea that if everyone benefits from something, then that's at the expense of I mean, my Labour Council's not perfect, it's better than a lot of them, but one of the things they did was when the bedroom tax was introduced, they absorbed some of that for social housing residents so that they wouldn't be implemented, especially with the council tax changes, yeah. uh, when suddenly even if you were in social housing and you used to be exempt from council tax, you now had to pay council tax every year, even if it was £80 a year, which you still have to find kind of £8 a month to pay. And what they did was, in order to mitigate that, when the rent increase happens, which happens every year in April, at the start of the financial year... What they, a wonderful housing market we have. You know, I live in social housing, and when I moved into my flat, the rent per week was about £65 a week. It's now about 125 over Fucking 10 hell. years. It used to go up by about £5 a year, there or thereabouts. Yeah. Yeah. For the last kind of four years, it's been an increase of about £2, maybe £3, maybe £1. Sometimes it's gone down. Okay. Um, and that's because the council are finding ways to make sure that people who live in social housing, who are having to now pay council tax, who are on benefit, aren't losing out on the money that's actually available to them. So they take in a little bit more of the cost. And that it means that they do have to make cuts elsewhere. So this is one of the things we're talking about. How your local councils are run will tell people how their life will look like under a Labour government. Yeah. Because they'll be able to see it in their day-to-day -day life. And it's something that a lot of people don't really understand, that local politics affects your day-to-day -day life a yeah. lot more than general elections that happen once every four to five years. And if the Labour Party had been able to think two steps ahead and realise that, they could have tried to look at their councils, look at the anger that's coming from where they're losing their vote base. And it is usually down to things like council decisions and a lack of resources in their local areas due to cuts at local government level. You've done something on that to kind of give them a better base to push their argument forward under Corbyn. But because they were so obsessed with undermining Corbyn, 
they completely dropped the ball on that. And so now, even if they do manage to get rid of him, which I don't think they're going to be able to, and even if they try, the conference will probably push through the McDonnell Amendment. And so they'll always be able to get a left winger on the ballot I in hope future so. leadership elections I, I think that will probably end up happening but they're going to have a big problem because at the end of the day the most problematic Labour councils are going to do more to take away the Labour vote in areas which should be seeing an increase in Labour yeah. vote like London because you say in one of your really really fire threads how can people trust the party on a national level if they just can't trust their local representatives you sum it up perfectly there. exactly and that's been my main criticism of the Corbyn era is that they dropped the ball on this yeah. um, and if they'd not I, it was understandable that they got sucked into this whole internal battle yeah but they should have somebody who was kind of stationed to say okay we're going to deal with the internal battle and you guys are going to deal with moving forward regardless whatever is happening we are not going to drop doing x y and z a b and c person are going to deal with this and then d e f are going to deal with that and, and so on so everyone says that they should have expected media bias and all of that and yes they should have and i think some appointments could have been better made but ultimately this is a party failing and it's not a new one it's the reason that labor have been losing votes consistently over the last kind of 20 years really at present i still don't see anything to address that i still see a plan for local labor going forward i mean all of the policies in the manifesto are great but if you don't have councils that are willing to implement them you're gonna have a big problem yeah and it's it groundwork above anything else yeah well there's this cultural divide in the labor party that we've already talked about isn't there so councils are having to work within a framework set by the conservative party and i'm not excusing them when they make cuts that are very detrimental to people's lives but with the Tories already forcing them with this finite budget to reallocate money from one place to another, there's some people who are faced with that choice who are simply more sympathetic to austerian ideals than um, than other members of the Labour Party. And as with any elected Labour official, the vast majority of Labour councillors are from the right of the party. They're not supportive of Jeremy Corbyn. And they very much think within... Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't even care. Like, if any fucking Blairites listen to this, I'm just going to say a neoliberal framework right now. <laughs> like, neoliberalism <laughs> is actually real. John Rental, go and guzzle some fillet of fish, you cunt. Like, I don't... Ah, drink some fucking blood. <laughs> uh. It's not the same without Kieran here to just be like, you fucking wanker about anyone he doesn't like. <laughs> No, but I think it reminds me of a tweet. I, th I can't remember who it was. There's a Labour MP who was kind of doing some kind of fake outrage at activists who were campaigning against the Labour Council. Yeah. And he was like, how dare Momentum be doing protests against a Labour Council? And I was like, why are you asking the question in that way? You should be asking, what did the Labour Council do to turn Labour voters into protesters against the Labour Council? Exactly. That's the question you need to be asking. Not the other one around. It shows how these people's politics are built on deference. Look, these people, they're holding a certain authority position for the Labour Party. Therefore, they've made their calls and, you know, you've got to respect that. 
You can't go out and protest against them. And like Tony Blair has said in the past when elucidating the difference between him and Corbyn, they see themselves as the people inside the office with the protesters outside yelling at them. It comes from having a lot of people who are holding positions in the party who are extremely hostile to what they see as protest politics. And of course, any of us would think there isn't this binary choice, but... They really do, instead of getting angry at the violence inflicted by those councillors, who often are very right-wing and reactionary, they get angry at the people pointing it out. To be honest, like, I think I personally have been like guilty of this at times, because there's some people who are sort of on like the ultra-left, or whatever you want to call it, who... It's not that I disagree with them on the councils. They don't want anything to do with the party, and I can't object to that. But they overlook how people on the left are, you know, momentum are organising those protests. Like, people on the left are repulsed by these people as well. People on the left are running against the right within the Labour Party to try and get these council positions. Labour isn't this kind of homogenous block of opinion. And again, this speaks to a kind of big failure of the Corbyn project, which is that we haven't got enough of our people holding these senior positions. Yeah, I think it's hard if you don't really believe in the parliamentary system to kind of engage with it in good faith, because you're always going to be very apprehensive about giving so much of your time and energy to something that could eventually turn around and basically stab you in the back which has which has happened in history especially in this country where there's like an undercurrent of racism within all of the political parties it's it's very hard to get people whose entire lives or entire kind of activism has been about countering the effects of that to suddenly come on board even if it is a completely different party or different outlook or different ideology that's driving it now so i can understand that anger what I always try to look at is how best am I serving the people that I'm trying to help and if I don't want to work for the Labour Party then that's fine but I think what will the people who I'm trying to help want more do they want what I want or do they just want something in the interim to make their lives a little better whilst we achieve something greater in the long term and I think there are long-term strategies and there are short-term strategies and the problem that I think sometimes the thing that frustrates me is I think sometimes we're almost idealistic about how a revolution could happen in this country there's no basis for a real revolution in UK politics right now beyond what's happening in the Labour Party really mm. because public opinion is still very shifted towards the right and until public opinion shifts leftwards you're not going to be able to put those arguments forward in any meaningful way you will always end up on the fringes and if if you're okay with them then that's great but that doesn't make people who want to try and give the system one last go kind of traitors or anything in that way if you can counter it with argument then that's great and if you can't then you need to focus your energy on something that you can change rather than wasting your time on something that you know isn't worth it anymore yeah but i think what we have at the moment we're almost asking too much of people who have been hurt by labor party in one way or another mm. to kind of put that aside and work with this current leadership and program but we're not really asking enough of the program and the leadership to work with those direct action groups yeah and i think the balance needs to be fine-tuned a lot more a lot of it is kind of the 
Brexit framing, I get very annoyed at the immigration stance. A lot of the immigration stance in the Labour Party, yeah. even from those who are aligned to Corbyn, is incredibly poor. I agree. And it's not helpful whatsoever because it actually lends credence to Labour rights. People like Stephen, what's his name? Stephen Kinnock. Yeah. yeah. It lends credence to the stuff that they're coming out with. And that's not helpful to get people who are opposed to the Labour Party because they don't believe they support them on the issues that matter to work with the Labour Party. So if we can't get people who are allied to Corbyn to get these people on board in terms of just getting their positions and opinions on things like immigration correct, then we're going to have bigger stumbling blocks going forward. So I think, and I, I don't know about everybody else, but I thought Brexit and immigration was the weakest part of the manifesto. Yeah. Thank you very much, Keir yeah. Starmer. Yeah, so, uh, so that, that for me is the key issue, how basically, so when the manifesto came out, yeah, a lot of people I know who are on the left who are supportive of Corbyn, but are maybe a bit more radical than Corbyn, and maybe see themselves more as a communist or an anarchist than a sort of Labour democratic socialist or whatever. People were really happy with the manifesto and its section on immigration when it came out because it was non-stigmatising towards migrants. It didn't make any false promises. In fact, it explicitly said it wasn't going to make any false promises about cutting numbers or anything like that. And it was generally quite strong. But the way that the Labour Party is, is that the left can't just put out a pro-immigration document and make it official Labour policy. Immediately, as you say, Keir Starmer got his grubby fucking cop hands on it. <laughs> and uh, what do you know, it was yeah. racism o'clock, baby. That's how the Labour Party works. There's always going to be some right-wing cunt looking over your shoulder saying, oh, you can make that a little bit more racist. Cater this a bit more to the deserving poor, not the fucking special interest groups or whatever. Michael Duggar in his anonymous quote to Jim Waterson in BuzzFeed said. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I mean, this goes back to what I was saying about a politically literate electorate. We can't have the immigration conversation that needs to be had because there are too many MPs in the Labour Party on all sides who don't actually understand the identity issues that are occurring in the UK and they're trying to put plasters on a much larger issue and thinking if we say this then we can quell it but actually no because when you say this you might be quelling this group but to this group you're alienating them a little bit more yeah and so it's not a question of trying to please everyone because you can never please all the people all the time but what you can do is have the conversation and have the conversation honestly and not be afraid to say, actually, no, this is bigotry. And you may have been led to believe it's not. You may have been led to believe this is a legitimate concern, but your legitimate concerns aren't based in what you're viewing as the cause. And I don't think that's been articulated in any meaningful way by anyone in the shadow cabinet. And every time someone has said something on that note, it's been countered by two or three MPs almost the very next day. This is one of the reasons why there's a confusion in Labour's Brexit policy, because luckily for Labour, what is in the final manifesto is so vague because that's <laughs> what the Labour rights do. Yeah. That it still leaves so much scope to come back to a position that's actually going to please a majority of those who are interested in a soft Brexit and those who don't want Brexit at all in one way or another, in terms of maybe single market membership or customs membership, various different things like that. But when you start putting in things about migration and workers 
and conflating that you're adding legitimacy to the UKIP argument that people coming here are affecting jobs for British people, which is not true. Exactly. So and putting that into your manifesto binds you to that argument. So the two primary changes made by Keir Starmer were to include a promise that there would be an end to freedom of movement which again is pretty vague because as we're definitely leaving the European Union... That's going to happen anyway. Yeah, exactly. We won't technically be a fully signed up member of the EU's free movement scheme. However, we could just like have something really similar with a different fucking name or something. It is so vague. But the other thing, which, as you pointed out, I think is actually more pernicious, is this suggestion that migration drives down wages. It's really frustrating because the unions pushed that line as well and it's the thing that angers me the most because there's no evidence for it really and the evidence that they cite for it is flawed there's no discussion on why is that evidence flawed why aren't you asking is this evidence actually representative of what's where do, what's where do they pick most of this from where do they where I do they I get don't know. it i don't I, i'm not sure i i think a lot of it is just from what they hear from constituents but constituents will tell you what they think is happening which isn't necessarily going to align with what is actually happening so if you've got builders who are telling you oh we're losing all our jobs to polish people because they want to work for seven pounds an hour but actually the polish people are working for seven pounds an hour because that's what they've been offered But that, that, that's not them coming in and saying, oh, we're happy to work for £7 an hour. I think they probably want to work for £10 an hour, but that's not what's happening. And it, it's, come, it's almost a false equivalency in a lot of the cases because it's like, OK, well, if you look at it from this job perspective, but what are we actually doing to train people in this job in this country already? Because access to blue collar jobs used to be a lot easier and it's not easy anymore. Not enough people are going into apprenticeships for, to become electricians or plumbers and construction and manual work in that way and so there was already a gap in the market for those eu workers to come in and fill in the first place and if you're not addressing why there was that gap in the first place how can you address it by just saying to these people don't come anymore we don't need these people to come anymore because you don't have the workforce here to replace them and it's the same with nursing and it's the same with a range of other jobs and it really speaks to how when it comes to immigration people aren't looking two three four steps backwards to see what is the root of this anger how were the right-wing press able to manipulate this to the level that they created this frenzy that resulted in Brexit. Yeah. Because there were steps at every turn that could have been taken to kind of hammer home the fact that immigration isn't what's causing a drop in living standards. It's not that at all. It's actually neoliberal policies that have done that. Absolutely right. (laughs) Matt Zob has been on a blinder. (laughs) Is this this the case specifically or just in general? Yeah, no. I'm just reading a couple of these tweets from about the Lib Dem collapse. Oh, yeah. He said, journalists told me that Tory HQ were hoping Corbyn would lose the second leadership contest because of toxicity of blocking Brexit. Thankfully, no Jolians are running the Labour <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be facing oblivion now instead of climbing the polls. I love how you've got Matt and Dawn Foster and all these blue tick people tweeting about the Jolians now. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's a great shame to lose someone like that. I don't know who's going to replace Matt, but I don't know if they'll be as open to kind of taking cues and criticism on board from from people like us he had respect among the lobby as well 
now that he's out there expressing his own opinions, they don't respect him quite as much. I think what's actually happened is because he's so good and he was good at his job, regardless of how high pressured it is, it shows now he's not in that job anymore. The veneer of respect from those who just hate Corbyn and hate the Corbyn project completely doesn't need to be there. So you quickly see those who are kind of diametrically opposed to the Corbyn programme and it shows in their responses to Matt whereas there are others who are still kind of trying to keep him on side they don't want to be seen as virulently anti-Corbyn like when Marie Latois went on her little rant and he shut that down very quickly (laughs) she was very very quick to point out that Matt wasn't who she was talking about yeah and other politicos came out and said, actually, no, working with Matt was always good and he gave us lines. But what they didn't do, which is what their job is to do, is to point out if it's not the leader's office, who is it that's dropping yeah. the ball? Because that feeds exactly. into the whole conversation of how, you know, Corbyn supporters are saying that there is sabotage happening within the Labour Party. If you're saying that you're not getting lines and responses from the Labour Party and that simultaneously you're saying it wasn't the leader's office, it has to be somewhere else. Yeah. Who is it? It's just for cognitive dissonance. It's like, oh yeah, Labour's really incompetent. Corbyn should resign. But it's not actually Corbyn's office that's the problem. I find it so frustrating. So, manifestos, eh? What's, hey. what's the deal with them, right? Kick off with the Labour one, shall we? Let's. Let's do this. 128 pages. Yeah, it's really long, and I... Has anyone read it all? I haven't read it. No, 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 I'm skimmed through. And... <laughs> I haven't fucking opened We heard it enough. <laughs> I heard all the good stuff. Yeah, exactly, like, I'm going to do my best to read at least a substantial yeah. portion of it. Also includes a supporting document which goes over how it's going to be budgeted and stuff in terms of economic plans and yeah. financial stuff. What's the name of the second document Ooh, um, that comes that alongside it? There's a second. No, it's fully costed. They're basically oh, I see. And a, a a, supplementary. A bibliography. Yeah, exactly. Which is like, this is how we're paying for it all. I mean, it's obviously a ridiculous way to frame politics, but it's kind of a necessity now. Well, I think it was a necessity of the Labour Party's own making because of the fact that they accepted the whole austerity mm. thing and never countered that, which was probably the first and most grave mistake that Ed Miliband actually ever made. Yeah. And poor Ed Miliband was actually strung into that by was it Liam Liam Young? Is Liam it? Young's the pro Corbyn columnist. The, <laughs> that's right. Sorry, Liam. There's <laughs> Liam something. The MP who wrote the notes. Liam Bookhead. Like, Liam Prick. <laughs> I'm sure his name was Liam something. Anyway, that note fucked the Labour Party in terms of economic credibility. Yeah, that, Liam Byrne. That, no, Liam Byrne. That. <laughs> what a vicious burn he left in note form what, to his entire like, fucking I, party. And the thing <laughs> is, that should have been the wake-up call. For all of the Corbyn critics in the Labour Party, I think they're incredibly naive. Yes, maybe Ed Miliband wasn't who they wanted, but Liam Byrne's note did more to damage the Labour Party for the 2015 election than anything Ed Miliband yeah. did in the five years. And they should have seen from the reaction from the media, who consistently referred back to that and kind of rode that wave of economic incompetence, and they assumed the best way to counter that media onslaught was to accept responsibility for a global crash, which is just 
utter stupidity and desperation. But it meant that they were hobbled because any policy they tried to promote instantly. How are you going to pay for it? 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 Mm. Seven years later, that's still happening. So I think what John McDonnell did was realize that whatever we put through in terms of an economic policy or any programs that we say when we're going to spend, we have to show where we're going to get that money from. Yeah. Otherwise, they're just going to hark back to how are you going to pay for it? Because you spent all the money, profligacy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it was actually a very smart thing to do. Of course, if we had a competent journalist, they would have asked the Tory party for a similar supplementary page from their own manifesto. But I have not seen Laura Kunzberg request such a thing. So we live in hope. <laughs> I doubt we will. In fact, she described Theresa May as mainstream May or something, didn't she, today? <sighs> Upon Theresa May... She described herself as mainstream twice in one sentence, so naturally Laura Koonsberg heard that, and she, she gave it some serious thought, and her analysis was, she must be mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is the level... Another thing, like, because Ian Dunn was saying, oh, I find nothing more tedious than the left's pointless vendetta against Laura Koonsberg. Be- I find nothing more tedious than Ian Dunn. Yeah. <laughs> Ian Dunn, who could ever want to leave London, the greatest city in the world? Also, I used to support Brexit. (laughs) Brexit Ian, with his fucking handkerchief in his top pocket. The the really worst thing about Ian Dunn is that... Where do we start? As someone who's lived in London for 27 years, Ian Dunn is the worst type of London that you could ever wish to meet. Um, <laughs> it's good for Ian Dunn that he probably lives in a very nice, gentrified part of London because he wouldn't last a minute in somewhere like Archway. <laughs> People would be like, what the fuck are you doing here? Piss off. He is the archetypal, I moved here from the home counties, I have set up here and now I think this is my manor and I'm going to dictate how London runs. The vision of London that Ian Dunn has does not measure up with a London of anyone who's born and raised here. It's almost two completely different places. So when he talks with authority about London, I'm sitting here thinking, what London are you describing? Because it's not the one I fucking live in. (laughs) It's like, what are you talking about? Like, he's, oh God, I just, I can't, I can't do anything. I don't understand why people listen to him. There's not a single one of his tweets where I've thought, Ooh, you said something interesting here. No! Well, he's the political editor of Erotic Review. Jesus Christ. It's incredible. <laughs> but he does write for other places as well, Ian Dunn, uh, including Twitter.com, where, <laughs> <laughs> where he has all these great takes. So anyway, I was originally saying, he was like, oh, there's nothing more tedious I find than Corbyn supporters' vendetta against Laura Koonsberg. So I'm promptly going to slag off Laura Koonsberg some more. Because, <laughs> I mean, I just find it, I find it baffling how she gets away with it. She says stuff sort of like, she looks through Labour's manifesto and she's like, huh, don't see any policies with numbers by them. She's literally just looking through to see if she sees any random numbers written by a policy. <laughs> it's not what, like, what the, the numbers say. It's it's not the substance of the policies. She must literally just be skimming the manifesto to see if she sees 
any letters and numbers close together. I'm just trying to wonder if she was always this bad. She went to ITV for a while, and then I think she went back to the BBC. And I'm just trying to want, remember, like, to think, has she always been this awful? Or is it a change <laughs> in the general tone of the BBC? Because they've made a lot of appointments to BBC who are basically just Tory shills, mm. basically like the long and short of it and that has seen even the ones who are always Tory chills become more openly Tory I mean Andrew Neil has always been a fucking Tory yeah but he's almost unbearably Tory now yeah to the point where he doesn't even really challenge Tory MPs on the daily politics anymore and, and things like that but there was a time where there was a scrutiny of the BBC that meant that they had to even at least appear to toe the line. That scrutiny has completely collapsed because the print media is exactly the same. Yeah. So now there's nobody to call the BBC out on it. And when they do get called out, we're all called conspiracy theorists or misogynists because she happens to be a woman. But, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think Laura Kunzberg gets any more hate than Nick Robinson or Andrew Neil. I think Andrew Neil probably gets the worst of it, if we're talking about it. But uh, it's the fact that as a political editor, you, you should show some kind of consistency in yeah, your reporting. That's, and it, it, it's done in her. It's that but she's editor. Yeah. And that's the crux of the issue, is that if you're not even analysing the manifestos with the same level of scrutiny, then you can't complain when people don't believe you anymore. She said when she appeared on a podcast that the New Statesman does, not their main one. And again, I don't know which person who makes the real politic podcast could have listened to this new statesman podcast but you know the word on the grapevine is that somebody involved in this podcast may have potentially listened to a new statesman <laughs> podcast with laura coonsberg on it but she allegedly says according to my colleague who isn't me that basically she like she doesn't read her mentions on Twitter. Oh, I think that's quite evident. Yes. She doesn't. So when she says something that's just... Because you know how she'll say something and she'll just let it hang? She won't follow yes. it up with another tweet. She won't yeah. explain what she means. She'll just say something very kind of vague, such as, oh, Simon Danchuk's left the Labour Party. This is embarrassing. And then a million people will ask her, who is it embarrassing yeah. for? For whom? And she won't... And we'll just move on to an, an, an next tweet. She won't respond to a single one of them. And so I got big numbers on a thread. I just... I, I followed up that tweet, the Simon Danchik one, saying, Laura, you know, people might stop accusing you of bi... I don't think I condescendingly used her first name. I might have done, I don't know. But it was like, you know, if people... People might not accuse you of bias so much if you just explain what you're trying to say in these tweets. If you just, like, elucidate a little bit more. Do you more. think she might just not know how Twitter works? <laughs> <laughs> Potentially. She thinks it's she, possible. You just throw these statements out into the void. Not to kind of take away from anti-Laura Crimson criticism. I just thought it was quite symptomatic of how the people who run the BBC social media and their political editors and commentators have no idea on how to engage on social media, and which is why I'm asking it, it's, there's a possibility she doesn't actually know how to use Twitter properly. Uh, potentially. Because... <laughs> I mean, because someone that I follow said I'm being spammed by Conservative Party (laughs) material by some spam account, put a colon for all these BBC accounts on Twitter. Yeah. And the BBC Newsnight account was like, could you DM me some screenshots? Yeah, didn't Nick Robinson Robinson respond as well? Yeah, could you DM me some screenshots as well and just tell me which account is it? And and they're thinking, it's it's your your account. Oh, you killed the joke. You killed the joke, guys. Uh. I'm just sitting there going, how did they not? Did they not see the colon? Did they not get what? I... 
and it just goes to, I don't know if these people understand how people use Twitter in terms of like political twists, in terms of political jokes and stuff like that. They yeah. don't they don't get it. And so sometimes I think they look at criticism or jokes from Corbyn people and think we're being serious. And it's like, no, yeah, no, we're just having a bit of banter here. Come on. Yeah. Join the 21st century. Nick Robinson, we mentioned him. What sets him apart from Koonsberg is that when people call him like a biased, corrupt, Tory fucking shill cunt or something, then he will sometimes respond and say, actually, uh, I try my best to be very objective. He will kind of engage with people sometimes and try and explain what he was saying when he posted some Tory bullshit. Koonsberg never, ever will. Like, she'll just leave it hanging there. Another interesting thing for that I or one of the others or whoever happens to uh, listen to New Statesman podcasts here. God. Name and shame. <laughs> it was Kieran. He's not here to defend himself. <laughs> so disappointed. Someone had to take the bullet for it. So Kieran said, <laughs> Kieran, the number one New Statesman fan um, in, <laughs> I'd say in the country, but um, he... Not me. Definitely, definitely not me. Kieran said that... When listening to the New Statesman podcast. When listening to the New Statesman podcast, which he listens to every week round the clock, he basically said that Laura Koonsberg in this podcast explains how she you know, she doesn't think much of the accusations of bias in the British media because there's such a wide spectrum of opinions in the British press from left <laughs> to right. She, Is she serious? Yes, she, she genuinely says this, <laughs> I'm told. In the podcast, she says that, you know, it's not like all the media's right wing because you've got The Guardian as well. It's like, oh, for fuck's no. sake. Saying it rather fast and loose with the definition of wide spectrum. Yeah, and, and <laughs> because you just know when she says, oh, but, you know, there's journalists who are on the left as well. She's talking about, like, George Eaton and Kevin Schofield. And all You'll the... literally put anything on his Twitter George if he's Eaton, texted who it. who got utterly <laughs> burned by Diane Abbott. Like, yes. 50 yeah, times within the space of a week during the coup. She just owned him over and over again. I don't think that man's ever correctly said anything. <laughs> you could just, yeah, just, just text it's him anything incredible. and he'll put it on his Twitter. He'll just put it up there. He does not care. It, he's like the new statement's John McTurnan. It's like, <laughs> you get anything right. <laughs> or sometimes he will get something right, but only because it's the single not. most like, obvious like thing in the world. Like, like he, even a stopped clock is right twice Like, George Eaton will come out and be like, you know, Labour's manifest is more Keynesian than Marxist. It's like, no, no, you're not no telling way. me that Britain's biggest social democratic party hasn't pledged to abolish private property. You, you've got to be fucking with me. I, I fucking cut up my membership card the minute I, I read that article, honestly. I filmed it, I put it on Twitter. <laughs> I filmed it, I, I went to a car dealership, like a Mercedes dealership, I said, George Eaton, he's written this article, fake Labour Party, fake Labour Party Twitter account, Dr. Bastano up to his old tricks again. <laughs> but... I think we really do need to talk a bit about this manifesto. The Labour yes, manifesto, yeah. we'll talk a bit about the Tory one afterwards. Let's talk about the policies that Labour are putting forward in this election. Jude? 
Yes. Hi. Um, <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> I think the policy that I think is going to be the biggest draw will be... Find out next week what Jude's favourite policy in the Labour Manifesto is in the thrilling second part of The Real Politics. My name is, of course, Dr Bastano. It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing. 